This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Ayelet Brin to tell us all about her book from NYU Press in 2023 titled A Revolution in Type, Gender and the Making of the American Yiddish Press, which honestly does quite a lot of things, right? Tells us about the American Yiddish Press over quite an interesting transformational period also tells us a lot about Yiddish women and different communities of Yiddish women and how they're being talked about, being constructed, what they're doing in these conversations. Um, And also in a lot of ways, kind of what was New York City like in this period and how were changes in kind of wider New York City things impacting the the Yiddish press and vice versa. So many, many things to talk about. Um, Ayelet, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get into the book fully, would you mind starting us off with a bit of an introduction of yourself and explaining why this book? Sure. So my name, as you said, is Ayelet Brin, and I'm the Philip D. Feltman Assistant Professor of Modern Jewish History at the University of Hartford, and I'm a historian who works primarily on American Jewish culture. So this project started as my dissertation, and in the beginning of grad school, uh, I was exp- exploring finding aids at various local libraries and collections and archives, hoping to get a sense of how the resources available uh, locally might shape my development as a scholar and the questions I'd be asking about Jewish history and American history and culture going forward. So when I started looking through the finding aids at the University of Pennsylvania's library system, I noticed that one of their libraries had the archives of B.C. Goldberg, who was a relatively prominent Yiddish journalist, and he was also the son-in-law of author Sholem Aleichem. Uh, And the finding aid included a pretty short biographical note about Goldberg's life and career. And about halfway through this note, there was a section that described how Goldberg got his start in Yiddish journalism by writing under a female pseudonym. It argued that writing by women, or in this case, uh, a man pretending to be a woman, was seen as more popular or more commercially viable in the American Yiddish journalistic sphere in the early 20s. So therefore, Goldberg decided to write as a woman to increase his chances of being published. 
Uh, and I came to find out later in my research process that there are actually several, I guess, factual inaccuracies, pieces of misleading information uh, in this paragraph, which I would explore in my book in detail. The biographical note was adapted from an essay by Goldberg himself. And like many figures in my book, he actually was not a particularly reliable narrator about his own life. Uh But I started stumbling in the same period across other narratives where other male writers made similar arguments uh, about uh, writing under female pseudonyms as being a perfect entry into the American Yiddish press, even while female writers attempting to write for the same publications at the same time were writing about their frustrations in trying to write for these publications or the way that their editors hampered their creative freedom. So these paradoxes... Uh, sparked my interest in exploring a broader research project about the sort of American Yiddish press and gender in all of its complexity. Fascinating. Okay, because obviously having read the book and that part of the book in particular, it's interesting to me to go, well, which bit sparked this off? So to know that that was kind of your entry point, I think is a fascinating way to raise a bunch of topics I now want to obviously ask you a lot more about. Um, And I think I think I'm going to start kind of chronologically, if you don't mind, um, sort of earlier on in the period you cover, and ask you to help us understand why Yiddish newspapers, why did they care about female readers? Why was that an audience that was useful, important? What, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. So uh, there are a variety of different reasons, but two of the major reasons have to do with sort of longstanding traditions in Yiddish language and culture, and then newer transformations happening in American popular culture at this time. So I'll take them in turn. So the first one is that there have been, there were longstanding assumptions of an implied female audience for things written in Yiddish or spoken in Yiddish in the early modern period in Eastern Europe. So this society uh, was bilingual or multilingual, depending on exactly who we're talking about, where uh, the language of everyday life, the language of the home was Yiddish and the language of worship and study was Hebrew. Uh, And these uh, languages had very gendered connotations. There was a sense that men were studying and women were in charge of the home. So the idea that Yiddish was a language of the home made it an automatically feminized language and it was denigrated for being feminine. Uh, All of these were assumptions that weren't necessarily based on reality, uh, but were sort of cultural tropes that were happening in Eastern Europe. So there's a sense that writing a newspaper in Yiddish has some association in and of itself with a female audience. But then... These Yiddish newspapers that I focus on, which are the daily mass consumption newspapers, were really a product of the United States. They really blossomed as an American phenomenon before taking hold in Eastern Europe. And the mass migration of Jews to the United States, beginning in the late 1870s, early 1880s, uh, and especially the migration of people who became Yiddish newspaper editors and writers, coincided with these profound changes in American journalism, which was shifting from pretty small political ventures into sort of large scale commercial ventures like the newspapers were more uh, commonly familiar with today. And central to that transformation was a sense that newspapers were now going to be funded by advertising and by circulation. 
And there was a sense that advertising in the United States was something uh, that was really targeting a female audience, a sense that women were the major consumers of household products. So for American newspapers to be commercially viable, there was a sense that they needed to appeal to women. So for the producers of the Yiddish press, they were using this as a model to understand how to make their own newspapers commercially viable and how to make them look more like surrounding American culture. So they were pulling on this idea that for a newspaper to be successful and to be American, it had to incorporate content for about some cases by women. So they had these two sort of complicated gendered connotations with Yiddish newspapers that they were pulling on when they were creating uh, the Yiddish newspaper market at the turn of the 20th century. And is this what you mean when you say in the book that the process of the newspapers um, transforming themselves into proper newspaper businesses was, quote, inherently gendered? Yes, yes. I would say that that's exactly what I meant by that. So because it was so central to these like longstanding traditions in Yiddish culture and to these newer American uh, atmospheres that people were beginning to engage with, uh, talking about a female audience became this way to talk about what a Yiddish newspaper should include, whether it should be more commercial or more political, whether it should be more in contact with American or transnational Jewish cultural trends. So when you look at these debates about women readers from the first decades of Yiddish newspaper publishing, they really become ciphers through which to debate these broader issues about what Yiddish culture and what Yiddish newspapers should be. So Given that foundation, then, um, you go on to talk about how invoking the perceived needs or interests of female readers was, quote, a powerful rhetorical strategy to discuss not just kind of how to make Yiddish press a real business, but also the present and future of the institution. Can you tell us a bit more about kind of this as it continues? Yes. Uh, so uh, as you say, this sort of tropes that are being used change over time, even if uh, there's also some continuity. But there are different major debates going on at different phases of the Yiddish press. In the first, it's about sort of how do you create, in the first uh, couple of decades, it's about how do you create sort of a sustainable market. Um, and then there are, once the sustainable market is created, there's a sense of how do you balance sort of the ideological, the commercial uh, the political, all of the different uh, sort of functions of Yiddish newspapers, and all of those become gendered uh, as well. And then over time, there's a sense that these newspapers might be losing readers to English language newspapers. So how do they prove that they are changing along with their readers? And that becomes another way that uh, gender becomes invoked in rhetorical ways, a sense that these newspapers begin marketing themselves as more modern by saying that they are publishing lots of material for women and by women. All right. So we've got this idea of how important it is to have female readers, to provide content for female readers. What's actually happening then in the actual newspapers for women readers. Can you tell us a bit about women's columns in these newspapers and what conversations and tropes are being explored here? Sure. Uh, so first, I want to sort of make sure that I'm clarifying that the editors of these newspapers were well aware that women were never the sole readers of these columns, uh, nor that 
their women readers would keep themselves just to women's content. So that's one of the things that I'm talking about in terms of the imagined female reader, that the actual reading practices of women uh, never necessarily aligned with what was sort of coded as feminine within a newspaper. Uh, And editors, again, were well aware of this. And that's also sort of central to how I'm thinking about these newspapers. Uh, But in terms of what was in the women's content, it was pretty varied uh, in terms of the actual content in these publications. Uh, And that was partly because of this varied audience that they were assuming was reading uh, this content. So there was a sense that men read women's pages or women's uh, columns for a sense of either titillation or entertainment or shock value or whatever, and that women read them for actual advice or uh, sort of guidance to guide how they were living their lives. So these uh, columns, some of them tried to strike the balance within one column between both of these things, and some of them leaned more heavily on one than the other, so that some of them were more attempting to guide women's lives, and some of them were more trying to be entertaining or frivolous or whatever. Um, Some of them were meant to be read in different ways by different readers, but many of them were actually, uh, I would say, deeply in conversation with other parts of the newspaper. So there's a sense that it's marked off as a separate space, a women's column, by saying it's for women and not for men. Um, But in reality, the editors and writers associated with these newspapers often created conversations within the newspaper with other parts of the newspaper within these columns. So for example, a women's column would uh, reference an article on the front page and ask readers to read that before reading it. Or they would reference a recent uh, write-in column, or they would uh, critique the writings of one of the other authors within the newspaper, and there would be sort of a back and forth between the different columns. So there's a sense that they are creating reading habits for their audiences that are actually sort of encouraging them to read all of this in tandem and to sort of see different columns as riffing off of each other, even if they are supposedly for different audiences, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, it absolutely does. Um, And given that very helpful kind of description of what's going on here, can you walk us through, I mean, I suppose the ways you talk about them as riffing off each other, but also in the book about some of the tensions caused or raised in some of this content. What were some of them? Yeah. Uh, so I am I think I'm going to give one example that sort of illustrates the broader theme so that it's a little more concrete. But a good example of this is the Freiheit, which was the communist Yiddish daily that was started quite a bit later than some of the other newspapers. It started in the early 1920s. Uh, And they didn't have a women's column for their first, uh, they didn't have a, sorry, a women's page for the first few years of existence, but they did have a women's column, which was written by Rachel Holtman most of the time. She was the, uh, she was a writer and translator in her own right, but she was also the wife of one of the editors of the newspaper, which was a very common way for women to gain entry into Yiddish journalism. Um, And so she would write women's columns and a couple of other types of content for the first few years before they introduced a women's page, which was initially half a page and then became a full page over time. Uh, And she wrote a series of columns right after the introduction of this women's page about the behind the scenes tensions that were sort of happening as they were trying to decide whether to have a women's page or not. So the way that she describes it Uh, was that there were sort of two camps within the editorial team at the newspaper. One said that there should be a women's page so that women 
uh, had content that would be entertaining to them, but also would help them in their particular struggles as women uh, within uh, the capitalist society in America. Uh, and then the other camp said that there shouldn't be a separate women's column because if they're a paper that stood for gender equality, then the idea of separating off content for women would sort of belie that in certain ways. So there, that was one sort of tension happening. Should there be special content for women that address their problems as women? Or is that sort of uh, in tension with the political project of this newspaper? And then once they decided to include a women's page, there were fierce debates, according to Holtman, uh, over what kinds of content should be included. So one camp said that the uh, readers of the women's page were looking for light, entertaining material because women tended to be less educated, and therefore uh, that the newspaper shouldn't tax them with overly difficult material and maybe shouldn't even include that much that was political. And then the other camp uh, was people who said that the readers of this particular newspaper, the Freiheit, who were women, were deeply engaged political subjects and therefore uh, were looking for that within their newspaper. And so even though uh, uh, Holtman in this column says that the newspaper is basically going to follow the second category and have more political content, as they went forward, they did end up trying to balance these different categories. Um, and it sort of reflects these broader tensions within this sphere over the various sort of, uh, I guess, things that the women's column and its readers represented for the newspaper and all of the various different assumptions about who is reading this content that sort of infiltrates the actual content of uh, all of these columns. Mm. Some very interesting tensions there. But I'd like to ask you to tell us about something you briefly mentioned in that answer, um, the idea of a women's column versus a women's page. When were formal women's pages created? And why do you think this happened sort of when and how it did? Yeah, so uh, women's columns were... Uh, a part of Yiddish newspapers, not since the first Yiddish newspaper in, in America, but pretty soon after that. They were a relatively common feature, mostly written by when, men with some exceptions. Uh, but the introduction of women's pages into the Yiddish press only happened several decades later, beginning in about 1914. And then over the next uh, half decade or so, every major Yiddish daily introduced a women's page, basically, or introduced a section that mimicked the content of a women's page, even if it wasn't called a women's page. Uh, and so there are a couple of different reasons why this happens all in tandem. So one is obviously competition. All of these uh, newspaper editors and writers were reading all of these other newspapers and trying to make sure uh, that they were sort of all on even footing or were not being beaten out by rivals uh, in terms of circulation and in terms of advertising. The other is that all of these newspapers were more and more trying to show the ways in which they were sort of deeply engaged with American popular culture to try to encourage readers to continue subscribing to them, even as they started to live their lives more and more in English. And one of the ways that they tried to do this was to sort of literally mimic the layout of an American mainstream newspaper. 
by including section headings that would be in mainstream newspapers. And one of them was the women's page. So segmenting all of the material supposedly for women, yet again, actually read by a broader audience, uh, onto one page made the newspaper look more American and therefore was making sort of certain claims to readers about the progressiveness, the modernity of their newspaper uh, through the layout as well as the actual content. So now that we have an idea of kind of where these debates are happening in the women's pages, in the women's columns, but not just there, and some of what the conversations are around kind of who's reading what, but also what is this community? How do we interact with the English language world, etc.? You know, you've given us all these pieces. Can we go into kind of the thing you raised right at the beginning that got you into this in the first place, sort of female authors who's writing this material so can you maybe walk us through what i found absolutely fascinating on the one hand what the newspapers say about who's writing this material and the involvement of women in the process and then the actual women who were involved what they said about it on the other hand Mm, yes so Uh, There are women's names that begin appearing in the newspapers relatively early, uh, so in the late 19th century. But most of the women's names, quote unquote women's names that I was able to trace, uh, were actually men, the female pseudonyms of male authors, often male authors who wrote various other content for these newspapers. Uh, And it's only beginning a little later that we begin seeing more and more women actually writing for Yiddish newspapers. And still, it's a relatively small number. Many of the names that we see are pseudonyms within Yiddish newspapers in general, but this is particularly true of the content with female names attached to it. Um, And so in the beginning of uh, Yiddish newspapers, this is partly uh, a strategy to make it look like there are more robust staffs writing for these newspapers than actually were. They're very short-staffed in these early periods, so a lot of people are writing content under various names for various reasons that have nothing to do with gender necessarily. But there was also a sense that men wanted some sense of control over what was being said to women in these columns. So in the early period, it was partly about that. Uh, And it was also partly about um, certain hierarchies that existed within this American Jewish cultural sphere about uh, Yiddish as a language and about certain types of literature or genres of journalism. So many of these men uh, who were writing in these newspapers were very multilingual, and many of them carried with them from Eastern Europe the sense that writing in Yiddish was somehow lesser than writing in other languages because it was reaching an audience that was less sophisticated. So if they were writing... Uh, material in other languages, let's say Russian or Hebrew, and they were writing things in Yiddish, they might write some of their writing in Yiddish under a pseudonym to sort of separate it out from their other writing and make it sort of less connected to their fame or to their sort of literary reputation. Uh, And many of them would write under female pseudonyms for a sense that they were writing when they were writing in Yiddish for a female or a less educated male audience. Uh, Some of them also wrote under a female pseudonym when they were writing in certain genres, which were coded as less sort of literary or less um, intellectually stimulating than other genres. So there's a sense that like literary criticism or highbrow literature is a more sort of prestigious form of writing than serialized fiction, for example, which was seen as entertaining and light and therefore 
less prestigious uh, and less uh, including of literary merit. Uh, and so this was partly about the style of writing, but it was also partly about the assumed audience of these types of writing. So many of these men wrote things like serialized literature or women's columns under female pseudonyms because it was less prestigious, but also because, again, there was a sense that the uh, presumed audience of these things was women uh, and less educated men, and these were less prestigious audiences. Um, but over time, uh, there's, these connotations change as the sort of market for Yiddish newspapers increases. And the rhetoric that these men use when they're writing under female pseudonyms is the sense that they're writing uh, under a female pseudonym not because they're ashamed about this type of writing, but because they're trying to take advantage of this sense that Yiddish newspapers are trying to market themselves as modern by including writing by women, no matter whether that writing is good or bad, no matter whether that writing is within certain genres or not in certain genres, that's at least what they claim. There's the sense that uh, these men at least are saying that they're writing under female pseudonyms because that is what the market is sort of suggesting that they do. But as you mentioned in your question, uh, this narrative that these male authors and editors are saying about sort of the late 1910s, early 1920s in the Yiddish uh, newspaper scene as being a particularly hospitable or welcoming place for female writers doesn't actually fit with what's going on on the pages of these newspapers and especially doesn't fit with the discussions that female writers have uh, in retrospect about their careers and also on the pages of these newspapers, because often in women's columns, women had some sense of uh, freedom in what they were writing within their columns. And many of them used their columns to critique their editors and what they were allowed to write within their columns. And all of these women say, one, that it was very hard to get a foothold in Yiddish journalism if you didn't have some sort of family connection. And two, that uh, male writers and editors and publishers had very specific understandings of women, what women should write and what women were allowed to write, and that they didn't really want women to stray beyond uh, those boundaries unless they were writing anonymous content. So there's this sort of tension between the stories that men told about uh, the freedom that writing as a woman gave them within the Yiddish sphere and the sense of constriction that female writers expressed about writing within this same sort of journalistic field at this time. Thank you for taking us through that. I think that was one of the aspects I found the most fascinating was kind of the, the so many calculations that especially the male authors made about which genre, where is it in the paper? What name am I going to use? How does that change? Um, so I think some really interesting things there, especially then comparing with what the female authors actually said about this. Um, is there anything further we should understand about how these calculations, uh, especially by the male authors, changed over time that we need to cover? Or have we discussed most of it already? I think that gives a good sense of it, the, the sense of uh, shame switching to commercial viability. Uh, they're both in there at both times, but sort of the, the balance between them shifts from one to the other over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one additional thing I appreciated about the book is that towards the end of it, uh, you talk a bit about kind of how this history has been remembered or not remembered, how it's been, not just kind of what happened then, but how we've thought about it since. And you have the sentence, quote, gender has become paradoxically both central and marginal to the way that journalists and scholars have recounted the history of the Yiddish press. 
Can you take us through this analysis? Sure. Uh, so there, because gender was so central to sort of the debates, rhetorical strategies surrounding the development of Yiddish culture, people often cite those sources when talking about the development of the Yiddish press. Uh, but they argue that they uh, sort of reflect the actual reading dynamics of these newspapers. So a sense that uh, when a, for example, socialist uh, polemicist is saying that only women read a certain section of the newspaper, they're saying that because they believe only women read that section and not because women for them is a stand-in for mass culture or commercialism or Americanization or all of these other categories. So there's a sense that these sort of rhetorical tropes have become branded into our understanding of what was actually going on in the Yiddish press but that doesn't leave a lot of room for the actual sort of more complicated and, in my opinion, fascinating gender dynamics of what's going on uh, within these newspapers. And another sort of complicated layer here is, uh, as I sort of hinted at before, there was a, a sense of circ uh, a circumscribed nature to what women were allowed to write within Yiddish newspapers, but that uh, that was partly about what they were writing that they attached their names to. So many of the women... Uh, I found in archival sources and in memoirs and in uh, letters, correspondence, that many of the women who I studied who were women's columnists were also writing a variety of other kinds of material for these newspapers, but were doing so either under pseudonyms or many of them were doing so anonymously. So if we only look at bylines, we don't get a full sense of the ways in which actual women uh, shaped the development of the American Yiddish press. Uh, they were working as translators. They were working as editors uh, of certain kinds of material. And they were writing content um, that was not given attribution. So it gives a sense that uh, these narratives about women readers and writers have shaped our understanding of the development of the Yiddish press that uh, don't necessarily line up with the actual dynamics of what was happening in this world at this time. But they do now because you've written about them. <laughs> and well, so you, well, and so you've gone into the archives and excavated this for us. So that's incredibly helpful um, to have available to um, make better sense and better nuance of this history. Uh, and very helpful that you've taken us through sort of the broad brushstrokes of what you've done leaving me really with only my final question. Uh, the book is obviously pretty new, so I realize this is a little cheeky to ask, but it is out there. People can read it. You no longer have to work on it. So is there anything else, uh, anything next that you have been working on, are looking to work on, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to highlight? Yes. Uh, so I've actually started working on a new project that's related to uh, this research, but also somewhat steps beyond it. Uh, it's about the censorship and surveillance of Yiddish culture and Jewish culture in general by the American government during World War I. Uh, there was a sense during this period that all foreign language culture in the United States was particularly dangerous, uh, and that Yiddish culture in specific was an especially dangerous uh, cultural field within the United States during the war and then after during the beginning of the Red Scare. Uh, and I spent the summer in the archives finding sort of thousands of documents related to the ways in which the government tried to censor and curtail uh, Yiddish cultural expression during World War I in response to these fears. Okay, that sounds cool. Hopefully yeah, it's that been very will be fun. 
and we can have you back and you can tell us all about it. Uh, thank you for giving us that sneak preview of your next project. Thank you yes, again but- as well for, I guess, telling us about your most recent project. So while you're off investigating further intriguing things, of course, re- listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled A Revolution in Type, Gender and the Making of the American Yiddish Press, published by NYU in 2023. Ayelet, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.